0: How are you labeled? I mean, how have you been labeled by others? And how have you labeled yourself? I mean, you listen to this podcast, which means, I'm guessing, that you're the type of person who thinks about who they are in this world, who they've been, and who they're becoming. One of the ways we claim a sense of self is by the labels we give ourselves. But What at first can be a helpful handhold can soon, to really horribly mix my metaphors here, become a straitjacket, what William Blake would call a mind-forged manacle. I'm wondering how your current labels serve you, and I'm wondering how they don't. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people. Read the best two pages, From a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Carolyn Webb is one of the world's experts in how to translate insights from behavioral science to actually improving the life you live. She wrote one of my favorite books with one of my favorite titles, How to Have a Good Day. They say books, particularly kind of business books and self help books, if they name the problem and solve the problem in the title, There's genius to that, and how to have a good day is just such a title. Carolyn started her journey as an economist, working on public policies. Almost 200 years ago, economics was called the dismal science. (laughs) What a vivid description. But it seems Carolyn didn't get that message. But she soon figured out what it was that really interested her.
1: My interest in economics had always been uh, the idea of it being a human science, and the tension that was growing between my interest in the the nitty gritty human stuff, what made it uh, good in a team feel in t- team setting, or what made it bad? What made it what made a leader good or bad in a particular setting? That was becoming more and more interesting to me, and that tension between letting go of this idea of myself as an economist. And the whole career that came with that and saying, actually, there's something different that I need to explore. As it turned out, it ended up just being a big loop round. And I ended up coming back quite hard into behavioral economics. And so I was able to knit everything back together again.
0: It was Marcel Proust who said, quote, The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. I think it's true for me and perhaps for many of us that we leave things behind and then return to them with new wisdom, new ambitions, the new eyes that Proust is talking about. But it takes some courage to take these voyages of discovery. How do you find that courage to step out into the unknown?
1: I think whether or not the new identity is right or clear or definitely what you're going to end up doing I think painting a picture in your mind of what that might look like because otherwise you're just stepping into the darkness and the unknown but if you can say to yourself what would a day look like if you were to play more to your strengths put more of the things that make you joyful and energized at the center of your life. And if you allow yourself to paint a mental image of that, I think that's, that's then something to move towards, even if you end up pivoting a gazillion times, as, as you know, I have in many ways.
0: So what did it really mean to step away from being a successful consultant and partner at McKinsey? McKinsey is one of the big consulting firms, the most famous, the most storied. It's really the preeminent brand in management consulting. What did it take to step out of that and towards who she is today? I
1: was definitely ready to embrace a new adventure, a bit more of a sort of portfolio life with a few different pieces in it. And I remember being a little nervous of stepping outside the brand of a big firm like McKinsey. And I remember thinking, who am I without? (laughs) And so I actually, for a year before leaving experimented with introducing myself not as being a partner at McKinsey but just I'm Caroline Webb and I'm a leadership coach or I'm an executive coach and the world didn't end (laughs) (laughs) so uh, (laughs) people still talk to me so actually you know that 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 was a very direct experiment that served me very well I think
0: how how did you come up with experiments I mean I'm a fan of this idea that you the path isn't obvious you've got to kind of grope your way forward and kind of experiments that tell you something, but I'm going to destroy your life in the, in the in the enacting of it are a great way to do that. I'm just curious to know how you, how you maybe how you think about experiments and even how you came up with them to kind of go, what am I testing here?
1: I think the trick is to look for the bit that feels sticky, that feels mm. like there's a point of resistance. So in my case here, there was definitely a, a bit of financial fear of quitting a good job um, yeah. you know, with sure. a salary and then stepping out and hanging out my own shingle and, and and not having that security but the other thing that was hard was that feeling of the loss of identity which you've already said is, yeah. is a big yeah. deal and so I I think the question that I try and ask myself is well what if I were not fearful about that like what what would I do and could mm. I do that in a small way and so yeah. that was uh, that that was the let me introduce exactly. myself without saying I'm from McKinsey, which
0: is great you know, it strikes me that there are, there's a kind of two levels at which you're experimenting. One is uh, a surface level, which is almost all like, a, what if I I have a different technical designation or something? And then there are these deeper rhythms, and I think you might have hinted at it when you go. "It's I've got some deep, deep grounding in growing up in a family that's not particularly affluent. Mm-hmm. So moving from the stability of a well-paid, high-profile, high-status job, It's not just a technical thing. It's got some deeper roots in terms of how you see the world. Yeah. Um, How do you even become conscious of those deeper rhythms at play?
1: I think you become conscious by slowing down and noticing Mm. your discomfort and noticing where you get stuck, um, And I think also acknowledging that each of us puts on different hats in our lives and wears different clothes, uh, so to speak, in a metaphorical way. And again, it comes back to the self-awareness of noticing, oh, which piece of me am I showing up with now? Yeah. And what does that tell me about how my identity might be shifting? Because I think all the research on personality shows that Personality is much more malleable than we used to think about in in, um, uh, psychological research. And so, you know, I think that there's some optimism to be had from that. And just like, yes, you can evolve, you can grow. Likewise, neuroplasticity, the understanding that our brains can reorganize much more fluid than than we perhaps thought, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I think that's also a sense of possibility uh, that emerges from that. Right. so I, I think just noticing what feels good what identity what hat what clothes mm. feel good and just you know thinking what would it take for me to wear those more I love that
0: you know I'm uh, perhaps in a similar way trying to identify as a writer mm. and I, i'm I'm distinguishing between the fact that I am already an author because I've of written books
1: Incontrovertibly so yes
0: (laughs) but I'm not quite sure yet that I'm a writer because you know the measure of an author is their output but the measure of a writer is the rhythms of their life you know do you design your life around what it takes to be a writer spending Mm -hmm. time reading spending time just writing words most days yeah and at the moment I still cram in books around (laughs) answering emails and running podcasts and doing a whole bunch of other things so I'm just wrestling with that identity thing at the moment, which is like, how do I, how do I experiment with being a writer and yeah. test out that identity?
1: Yeah. Maybe there's a half a day a week when you you try on that identity and notice what right. you like about
0: it. Yeah. Um,
1: and yeah. maybe you don't want to be a writer.
0: Maybe, exactly. maybe being That's, an
1: author is just fine.
0: That is, that is one of the outcomes of this, which is I'm like, yeah, it sounded really good. Like when I started my career, yeah. I wanted to be a coach. And then I really found out that I didn't want to be a coach. Coaching wasn't playing to my strengths. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Hey, Carolyn, yeah. tell me about the book you've chosen to read from.
1: The book I've chosen to read is How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett, Lovely. who is a great hero of mine, and um, I'm excited to be sharing some of her work today.
0: You know, I've heard her on podcasts before on the uh, Farnham Street uh, podcast, oh, yeah. and yeah. she was just dynamite. I remember listening to that. and. Yeah having a plane to catch and not being willing to to get out of the car I was listening to the podcast in because it was so so good so I'm so excited that you're the first person to to bring her to the podcast fantastic um, how did you decide what pages to read
1: well the book is her masterwork it's it's really uh, you know, distilling years and years and years of research into what the brain is for and how it Make sense of the world for us. So it's not a small topic. Mm. And I was de- determined to pick two pages from it because not only is it um, has been intellectually and professionally very influential for me, but it's also been very personally transformative for me. Uh, I've re- reread it last year um 2021 and i really found it was transformative in how it helped me navigate an extremely tough period in my life so i was determined to find uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, two pages and i've done my best to to stitch together And i've paraphrased in some places um, because it is neuroscience but she's such a brilliant writer anyway um that i've just paraphrased in a few places where she's referring back to things that she said earlier in the book and it's really sort of setting up the the big idea of the book, um, or at least one of them, there are several big ideas. And the big idea of the book here um, that I'm talking about is the fact that emotions are created by our brain to make sense of the world around us.
0: That's so great. Uh, Well, let me introduce you formally, Carolyn Webb, author of How to Have a Good Day, reading from How Emotions Are Made. Over to you, Carolyn.
1: In every waking moment, you're faced with ambiguous, noisy information from eyes, ears, nose, and other sensory organs. Your brain uses your past experience to construct a hypothesis about what's going on and compares it to the cacophony arriving from your senses. This lets your brain impose meaning on the noise, selecting what seems relevant and ignoring the rest. And she goes on to say that it's not just data from the outside world where your brain is trying to Guess the meaning, it's also inside your body. From your brain's perspective, your body is just another source of sensory input. Sensations from your heart and lungs, your metabolism, your changing temperature and so on, have no objective psychological meaning. If you feel an ache in your stomach while sitting at the dinner table, you might experience it as hunger. If flu season is just around the corner, you might experience that same ache as nausea. If you're a judge in a courtroom, you might experience the ache as a gut feeling that the defendant cannot be trusted. In a given moment, in a given context, your brain uses concepts from your past experience of similar situations to give meaning to internal sensations as well as to external sensations from the world, all simultaneously. So from an aching stomach, your brain can construct an instance of hunger, nausea, or mistrust. Uh, depending on the context and your experience your brain picks what it thinks is the best guess and she gives a really fun example from her own life which i love back when i was in graduate school a, a guy in my psychology program asked me out on a date i didn't know him very well and was reluctant to go because honestly i wasn't particularly attracted to him but i'd been cooped up too long in the lab that day so i agreed As we sat together in a coffee shop, to my surprise, I felt my face flush several times as we spoke. My stomach fluttered, and I started having trouble concentrating. Okay, I realized I was wrong. I am clearly attracted to him. We parted an hour later, after I agreed to go out with him again, and I headed home, intrigued. I walked into my apartment, dropped my keys on the floor, threw up, and spent the next seven days in bed with the flu. So her neural processes constructed a feeling of attraction from a fluttering stomach and a flushing face, and that's what's going on all the time. And the the conclusion here is this. An emotion is your brain's creation of what your bodily sensations mean in relation to what's going on around you in the world. Philosophers have long proposed that your mind makes sense of your body in the world, from Rene Descartes in the 17th century to William James in the 19th. Neuroscience now shows us how this process occurs in the brain to make an emotion on the spot. In summary, you're not a passive receiver of sensory input, but an active constructor of your emotions.
0: I love that story, although I do want to find out, you know, (laughs) did she keep dating him or was it like, actually, I'm not attracted to you at all? Yeah, Um, no, I
1: don't think she kept dating him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Beyond the dating story, what what's the note of truth in this for you?
1: Yeah. Well, once you know that your emotions are just your brain's best guess at trying to make sense of what's going on, both in what you're experiencing and perceiving from the outside world, but also what you're noticing in your body, and you know that there are multiple ways to interpret those signals, and your brain's just picking what it thinks is the most likely story, I think that's very powerful because it gives you – A sense of agency and choice it allows you to say huh i feel back to our conversation earlier on i feel some discomfort what does that mean does that mean i don't like what i'm doing or does it mean something else what could be all the different stories that my brain might be trying out here and it allows you the possibility of trying on a different story Mm -hmm. and you know this has been well established as a as a technique in both therapy and in coaching, the idea of reappraisal, you know, you look at a set of assumptions and you say, well, what if they're not true? Let's just try on some different assumptions. Let's, you know, just lay out the facts more cleanly without any assumptions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then let's see what comes out of that. I mean, we know that that, that's tremendously powerful and I've used that a lot in my work and I've used that a lot with with clients. But what this does is it, it starts to unpick that we know the neuroscience behind this now and that right. it's that starts to become very interesting. So she doesn't say that this is necessarily new knowledge, but it gives us so much more confidence in something that we might have all, always suspected, which is that, uh, well, yeah, I like this, the, I like the, the line from Hamlet, act two, scene two, uh, the, you know, there is nothing Uh, either good or bad but thinking makes it so we've seen this in art and philosophy and literature over the years now we can see at a more Mm -hmm. granular molecular level what's going on in the brain that's so interesting so it's for real (laughs) 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 reality is a a fiction reality is
0: Shakespeare (laughs) blabbering on about stuff (laughs) he actually got something right for once. um it's one thing to understand that um this power of, of you get to create the story or get to try on different stories and see which ones actually serve you best. It, it's quite hard to do that in the moment because yeah. your emotion feels that, like it's true and your judgments yeah. feel like they're true yeah. and who cares about the facts. It's like, you've got, you got feelings and you've got opinions and they feel like they define the truth of it. Yeah. And often and they do. Just, I mean, and so, they do. It's just
1: yeah. that it happens to be one hypothesis and I I think you're right that this is, I mean, for me, I think it's been in the deepest life journey Mm. from a personal perspective is this, uh, you know, from being in my twenties and taking everything terribly seriously and personally to loosening my attachment to Mm. this is definitely about this. And this is obviously (laughs) me that's, you know, I've done this. And, you know, it's the reason I say it's a life's journey is because last year, um, I, I had to relearn this and we often have to relearn things we mm. already know when the context around us changes. Yeah. Um, my situation was that um, you know, I'd made a big decision to reorganize my life with my husband's support uh, to partner with my brother to really be present for my mum's my last journey. So mm-hmm. you know, she was given a terminal diagnosis. We knew she was dying. We didn't know how long she was going to have and about two and a half years into basically non-stop crisis and, and uh, really, you know, so much stress and, and yeah. worry. Um, I was feeling really exhausted and I had this narrative in my mind because um, I'm a very responsible person and I always, you know, do the maximum. And I was thinking, well, if I feel sort of like I don't have the energy to do anything, then I'm lazy. I'm demotivated and lazy. So there was a sense of a bad child, right? (laughs) Exactly. And, and, (laughs) you know, what was interesting was that I was actually rereading this book, how emotions are made. I was listening to it on audio, whereas previously I'd had it just, you know, in my office and had sort of read it uh, in bits and pieces. And I listened to every single word and it suddenly, (laughs) suddenly realized, (laughs) Oh, Oh, so I'm exhausted. My brain is telling me a story about the fact that I'm lazy I'm actually just tired, like really tired. (laughs) And I know that sounds obvious because deep truths often sound obvious once you lay them out, (laughs) but oh my goodness, it was like a weight lifted and I could reconnect with, you know, what my body and what my mind needed. So it was really interesting to have a book that was important professionally and intellectually suddenly become so personal.
0: Karen, I'm wondering what you've learned about how you find those brief moments where you get a chance to reauthor what's going on. Because I, I, for me, I think so much of the challenges, I, it just doesn't even occur to me that there's another mm-hmm. story to be told
1: and mm-hmm. another
0: way of framing what's going on. I just kind of plow on. Um, and I'm just, I feel like I'm probably missing clues and doorways and thresholds or <laughs> exit ramps, whatever. How, is, have you, yeah. have you, knowledge or insight around how you stay more attuned to understanding when you might want to choose to reframe yeah. the, the the input?
1: I do, I do actually. Um, you know, I mean, one thing to say is that we don't want to reinvent or question everything all the time, because, you know, this is actually the way that our brain navigates, see trillions of pieces of data at any given moment. We need to have an interpretation, a hypothesis, whether it's mm. a an emotional one or a non-emotional one. Uh, we need that. And if we questioned ourselves, you know, from moment to moment, it would be a disaster. We'd, we'd paralyze ourselves. Um, but I think it goes back to this, the fact that there is this interoceptive set of data, so the internal sensations. Mm. And knowing what your tell is... So, I mean, everybody's different. I will say, actually, this changes over time as well. My, my gut has become much more of a source of, you know, yeah. uh, oh, hello, Caroline, this might be a moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, historically, it was usually sort of, you know, my face getting a bit frozen or, you know, it's sort of mm-hmm. a bit of tightness here. So it takes a little bit of um, pausing and thinking, okay, well, when I think about moments, well, to this point about sticky moments, what do I notice in my body that might give me an early warning sign and also yeah. are there patterns in what tends to cause these situations where i i opt for one story that's right. with in retrospect might not have served me because you know we do have we do have patterns in what tends to lead us down that you know it might be you know for me whenever it's whenever i'm trying my very best to do something good and someone thinks that i've been ill intended that is right. you know that is almost <laughs> <laughs> I'm immediately, you know, putting my hands on my stomach. Yeah. Okay, right. So what are different ways of thinking about this? What would be a different assumption? What could be a different story? So I think I meant to, it, I meant to
0: say this this interview's been quite disappointing so far, Carolyn. I mean, <laughs> I was I was hoping for so much more than what you're actually giving me, but fine, we'll just carry on. <laughs> oh
1: my goodness. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I'm breathing deeply. Yeah, I, I mean I, I don't think this is easy because it's yeah. below the level of our consciousness that this process is happening yeah all you can do is know your patterns and be attentive to what your body is telling you if yeah. that's the internal signals and be attentive to what the external world tends to create in you and just perhaps give a bit more space i it's made me so much humbler over the years um
0: <laughs> well, I mean, what do you mean, much mean by much humbler? More able to, hmm? hum, hum, humbler is an interesting word with with many meanings what, what, do you, what does it mean to you when you say i'm much more humble
1: I'm much more aware that my perception of reality is um, a simulation in my brain and yeah. that it is mostly made up. Um, mm. you know that, that came out of neuroscience and psychology in the 1990s. Um, you know, in the visual cortex and the brain, 10% of the neurons are wired to take an input from the outside world. 90% are wired to make predictions to the rest of the brain. So mostly we're just creating uh, a sense of you know a, a, our guess our best guess about what we're seeing in front of us rather than actually seeing what's in front of us and that's true for all the senses. So it does make you humble in the sense that you just say okay I thought I was sure that you said that I was stupid but maybe I misheard or maybe you're having a bad day or maybe or maybe or maybe and it just mm. And the more you, the more you practice it, then the easier it is to just loosen your grip on, I'm right. I'm absolutely right. And what mm-hmm. I've seen and experienced is the objective truth. That's what I mean by humble.
0: Thank you. You know, I, just reflecting on all you've said, and you've said so much in a condensed mm-hmm. period of time, so I'm just holding on here, but I think <laughs> one of the, um, one of the things that occurs to me is you tell some of your stories about kind of how you, uh, if you like triggered, if that's the right word around it, you know, it feels like there's often a, a, a kind of deep uh, story that is true to your sense of identity that different moments threaten. Like, I'm just making this up, of course, Carolyn, but if one of your, if your deep story is, I am responsible.
1: Yeah.
0: One of the things that happens when you're not responsible or not reliable is that. And then for me, probably one of my deep stories is i am free and it means anytime i'm like there's this challenge to my sense of autonomy i'm like i mean i'm I'm somehow into a whirl of misery and making stuff up about what's really going on and what their intentions really are so that's really powerful
1: yeah and i think you know real maturity and humility comes from knowing those patterns in yourself i mean we all we all want to feel a sense of self-worth we all mm. and that includes autonomy and that includes a feeling of agency and competence and yeah uh, and, and so forth so the things that i've mentioned the things that you've mentioned are, are quite universal but there are certain expressions of them that we know in our own minds yeah. will be especially vivid and yeah. especially likely to to cause those moments where we maybe make a misinterpretive you know we we, mm. we kind of we choose a story, which takes us down a certain route that in retrospect, we think maybe didn't serve as brilliantly as it might have.
0: Your book is called How to Have a Good Day, but it's been out for what, three years or four years now, maybe even longer?
1: Maybe even longer. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in so, fairness,
1: it took about 15 years to write. So, you know.
0: <laughs> well, I'm look, I'm celebrating the fact that we're still talking a book about a book that came out five years ago because most books it. vanish without trace very- and your book is wonderful. Thank you. And I also know that neuroscience is galloping along at a rapid pace. I'm curious to know what's been a kind of a new, a new learning or a shift in your thinking around what it takes to have a good day based on some of the new research that has emerged.
1: Well, actually, one of the reasons that I got to know Lisa Feldman Barrett is because she was tremendously kind to me when I was writing how to have a good day. I was you know, desperately trying to stay abreast of neuroscience and psychology and behavioral economics. And it was quite a lot, you know, I was yeah. reading a lot, but, yeah. um, and so I tried to make sure I had some advisors, people I could turn to and say, is this right? Is this because also when you're trying to simplify science to That's make cool. it accessible, mm-hmm. it does really feel, um, sometimes a little risky because you're taking out some complexity that is necessary. And so I really do feel, um, that you know if you are going to step into the world of popular science you need to have a good committee of advisors now she was not on my committee but (laughs) i've seen her work and so i i emailed her and i said i really i'd love to talk through something with you which was you know in in particular it was about um stress and about the amygdala and you know we always used to say oh the amygdala is the fear center of the brain it is not at all (laughs) it is um if anything, it just sort of directs attention, it it responds to anything that's novel. And Mm -hmm. that includes things that make us fearful. But actually, it includes anything that generates uh, a sense of relevance and salience for us. And, um, and I thought, my goodness, you know, this is, I've got to get this absolutely right. She responded, she was willing to jump on a call, chat, uh, which was incredibly generous and kind, and yeah. then we later on we met in person and we compared notes about you know taking uh scientific ideas into the world obviously she has rather more than i do and um you know i i that kindness um mm-hmm. you know was just just tremendous and so i just i try to stay in touch with what's what's new and yes. i think she's a you know she's a very good beacon, you know I just read everything that she says and does. <laughs> And I do think that, you know, more and more, we just know that there's no particular area of the brain that does one specific thing. Every part mm-hmm. of the brain is engaged in everything. Um, and, you know, that is much more complex. It's less cool than being able to say, oh, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex does this," But it doesn't because it's recruited and engaged, right? Right. all sorts of different things. And so, you know, I think that, you know, that's that's the kind of learning that I'm trying to Keep
0: yeah.
1: uh, pushing forward in myself so that I can be a good translator of, of where the science is going.
0: The challenge with writing a book called How to Have a Good Day is that a lot of people go, How's your day going? <laughs> oh, on. yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what you find trickiest to navigate in the quest to have a good day.
1: Well, one of the reasons I picked this book is because for me, um, staying steady when you, I I definitely do tune in to other people quite intensely. Um, I think it helps me in my work as a coach. It helps me when I'm on stage speaking to an audience. But I need to work myself at staying centered and steady. And actually, when I was still a management consultant, there was a big body of work that we were putting together on what it took to be a good leader and professional called centered leadership. And it all started then because I used to have colleagues come to me and say, are you centered today, Caroline? Are you centered?
0: So, you know. Stop asking me that!
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that that is definitely the thing mm. that I work on most. I think the other thing for me is I'm not a very, I'm not a very routinized person. And so right. I have to be um, honest with myself about that. And I have to also acknowledge that I need to be careful with the rituals I do put into my life because they're going to take some effort and they've got to be worth yeah. it. And so I have a few rituals that I, you know, are really important to me. Um, I have to choose them wisely.
0: I think that's so helpful for me to hear because I never set up a routine that I couldn't then hack. i has <laughs> been my whole life hacking my own good intentions and I'm like it's so annoying (laughs) but it's it comes down to that kind of deeper narrative I have around I am free and I will be free and my freedom won't be compromised even if it's being compromised by me I'm like oh no it won't so it's um how Carolyn how do you sit with the paradox that you've just presented us with because here's one way of framing what you've told us one is, we're just making stuff up all the time. <laughs> it's all fluid. Y- yeah. You know, you, you 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 shouldn't totally trust what your brain is telling yourself. Because <laughs> when the brain says, I'm the most important organ, you've got to remember, it's the brain telling you that. So it's like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's Sorry, slippery. It. <laughs> and at the same time, this idea of being centered and present and calm is about a kind of deeper trust to yourself. It's a kind of this sort of sense of calmness about who you are and how you are in the world. And, you know, to use a word you used right at the start of this conversation, there's a, there's a tension between those two things, or there could be. I'm wondering how you hold that tension.
1: I think about it a lot. I think it's wonderful that you've pulled it out. You know, there is this, I, I, the way I resolve it in my mind is just to feel that, you know, what we can do, what I can do is, is just, be the best version of myself that I can be at any given moment. Yeah. And to be kind to myself now to be clear, I I would say I have to work on that (laughs) continuously, but to be kind to myself Mm. about the fact that in a complex world, you're not always going to get things right, but that just that guiding idea of just you do the best you can. You tread as lightly as you can. You hold your ideas as lightly as you can and you show as much compassion and understanding for others as you can. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, maybe maybe, what we're experiencing in our heads is a simulation, but that doesn't mean it isn't a wonderful life.
0: That's right. And that you're not the hero of that simulation. Yeah. Um, t- tell me what you've learned about being kind to yourself.
1: Mm. Well, I think quite a few people would say, uh, who know me would say, "Yeah, t- t- tell us, Caroline." <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
0: <clears throat> we'll find that quite amusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I think I think the um, you know I I think of my personal mission in life as being um, of service to others and 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 helping other people thrive. Mm-hmm. And I would say another lifelong thread has been trying to work on um, making sure that I put on my own oxygen mask. That overused. <laughs> metaphor um it came to a head in 2003 actually when i had a bit of a health crisis which we would now all understand um it was a post-viral syndrome so i had a virus it took a while to go away then it came back five years later Uh, uh, great fantastic thank you very much Um, (laughs) and that time it didn't go away or at least i ended up with this long drift now Mm. this is what's happening um For a lot of people with long COVID and it's terribly debilitating and it really changes your sense of how important your body is in your whole experience of of life and so that for me that 2003-2004 totally reset my sense of how I needed to see myself as a whole integrated human where I needed to look after the sustainability of the organism not just you know yeah. maximizing what i was doing there and then but thinking about well long term how do i make this all fit so i would say that there are times when i drift away from that and then i you know come back to it um and you know but it, it really was it took a crisis to get there and i really love it when i see people who are able to get to that understanding without having a crisis um, because we all need to honor the need to look after ourselves um, you know, physically and mentally in order that we can do good things for other people.
0: I've been a virtual friend of Carolyn now for quite a few years, but it was only recently that I made it to New York and we met up in person. The coffee shop we went to closed early, so we had to go and get a cocktail, which of course was perfect. One of the things we discovered when we were chatting over a cocktail is that we both like dressing up. Now, she's been to Burning Man many times, and I was, which where people dress up in wonderful costumes, and I was the driving force behind a small group of friends that won the Best Dressed Prize in the Canberra Times Family Fun Run six years in a row. So, It was fun to hear us talk about putting on different hats in our lives and wearing different clothes. I mean, we were talking metaphorically in the interview, but now I'm thinking that's probably literal as well. I mean, we all have a uniform. We all get dressed in our uniform. I mean, for years I had shirts that I would consider box of crown shirts. They were long-sleeved roll up the sleeves that have a pattern on them, often from Liberty in the UK. Now I have shirts that I consider mbs.work shirts. They're more short-sleeved, vaguely Hawaiian, but not Hawaiian. (laughs) And even as we speak, in fact, I'm dreaming up what my next uniform might be. What if I started to wear a suit to work, even though work is working in my home office? What would it mean to be dressed up like that every day? what story would it mean that I was telling to myself? Think back to what your answers were from the intro, the intro where I asked you what about your labels, both given by others and generated by yourself. How, I wonder, does your uniform both support and contradict those labels? If you're interested in the podcast interview that we mentioned in the interview, you can find that at fs.blog. That's uh, Shane's wonderful website and blog series. Um, and you can uh, listen to him interviewing Lisa Feldman Barrett. His podcast is worth listening to all the way through. If you'd like other conversations that are similar to the one I had with Carol, and I've got two I might recommend for you. One, Amantha Imber. That interview is called Make It Magical, Make It Meaningful. And then Jenny Valentish, How to Reinvent Yourself. Both Amantha and Jenny, in fact, are, Australia, are based in Australia, so you're getting a good antipodean recommendation. If you'd like more of Carolyn, and you should get more of Carolyn, right? she's one of the loveliest, smartest people I know, you can find information about books and coaching, courses and speaking, and a fun quiz as well at carolynwebb.co. carolynwebb.co.co. I think that just leaves me to say thank you for supporting the podcast listening to the podcast reviewing the podcast giving it some stars if you've done that and particularly if you've liked an episode enough to recommend it to somebody else the way this podcast uh spreads best is by word of mouth and if you can help us with that i am very grateful you're awesome you're doing great